I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show and a podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. As we observe the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection and look ahead to a corrosive campaign for president, we've invited three historians and authors from different regions of the country to reflect on this American moment. Can history be a guide to where we are? Do we have the chaos and divisiveness we deserve? How do we approach what comes next with clarity and perspective? We're joined by Carol Anderson. She's a historian and professor of African-American studies at Emory University. She is the author of a number of books, including White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. And she joins us from Atlanta, Georgia. And Professor Anderson, welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. It's great talking with you too, Carrie. Professor, choose one adjective to describe how you see the state of our democracy, and then we'll delve into why you chose that word. Precarious. Tell me why. Because we are hanging by our fingernails on an abyss of authoritarianism and anti-democracy and danger. Um, And we're on that cliff because we have a wide swath of people who do not believe in democracy. And we have one of our major parties that that has made it clear it does not believe in democracy. And when you have one of your major parties not believing in the foundational roots of this nation, we're in trouble. Do you believe that many voters, no matter which political stripe they come from, have a an urgent sense of that precarity, or is that part of the problem? I think that that's part of the problem. To me, part of what, what we're seeing is what I call the drug of American exceptionalism. And it's that sense that, oh, that can't happen here. I mean, that's not who we are, but it has happened here. It's happened here before. And it's our inability to grapple with that history, to understand how precious democracy is and how fragile it is and how easily it can be taken away and destroyed is part of the problem, is not seeing the warning signs. So when you have the leading Republican nominee talking about immigrants will soil the blood of this nation, what? I mean, that is like Danger Will Robinson. We should hear, hear the warning lights going off. But instead, you have members of that party talking about, oh, that's not what he meant. That's not what he said. That is what he said. That is what he continues to say. Um, so when you begin to look at a group of people as not people, as vermin, as dangerous to the society in that way, what you're doing is you're creating an us versus them sense in that society where them, they are the enemy. And you can do to that enemy whatever you want to because it's justified. That's where we are. You mentioned American exceptionalism. And of course, that idea is informed by mythology. Sometimes that mythology can be binding, right, among a people who consider themselves as a kind of collective Sometimes it can be really dangerous. And I wonder if you assess the kind of mythology that America has relied on for, for centuries as, as dangerous today, as shading or obscuring our ability to really see what's happening clearly. So the, the long answer is yes. Um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is that we're in the middle of this massive push to erase American history, to not teach wow. it, to not even talk about it. Um, so we don't understand how we got here. I often say this, that America is an aspirational nation. We aspire. We hold these truths to be self-evident. So when that was written, we were holding people in bondage and treating them as property. But we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's an aspiration. And so much of American history is that you have people fighting to make that aspiration real. 
Mm-hmm. When you erase that history and then you treat the United States as if it was Athena just coming full blown out of Zeus's head and perfectly formed, then you miss those struggles. You miss the, the policies that made that struggle necessary. Then you miss the resolve and the resilience of a people to, in fact, make this nation strong and whole. So that is how you can begin to treat African-American studies as not having any kind of educational value. That is how you can treat women and gender and sexuality studies as being identitarian politics. So that means we don't understand how power works in this nation. That means that then we're able to craft narratives to explain what we're seeing without understanding the history behind it, without understanding the policies behind it. And that that sense of coming full-blown then treats criticisms. It treats treats the efforts to make this nation a fully functional, vibrant, multiracial democracy as heresy, as being un-American, as being unpatriotic, when in fact this push to make this nation what it says it is, is about as patriotic as it comes, is about as devoted to this nation as it comes. In the weeks after the January 6th insurrection, 2021, You wrote that the insurrection should be seen as an expression of rage over failed attempts to delegitimize the votes of Americans of color. We know that voter suppression is nothing new in American history, but but I'd like you to be very explicit about how you link this history of voter suppression and what those people were doing that day on January 6th at the nation's capital. Where's the connection? Uh, The connection is when you hear Newt Gingrich, who was an ally of Trump, talking about they stole the election in Atlanta. They stole the election in Philadelphia. They stole the election in Detroit. And they stole the election in Milwaukee. Those are cities with sizable black populations. The way that they went after Maricopa County, Mm -hmm. where you had a sizable number of Latinos and indigenous people voting to flip Arizona. So they're identifying these areas that have sizable minority populations as basically being illegitimate. So when you have Mo Brooks in Alabama talking about, if you only count the legal votes, then Trump is in his second term. So what makes those votes illegal? It wasn't that there was a misuse of absentee ballots. There have been numerous, numerous investigations on absentee ballots. Minority communities did not misuse those. There have been numerous investigations on drop boxes, which were put in place because of COVID-19. Numerous, again, investigations. As the council for the state of Georgia said, there is nothing untoward about drop boxes. They didn't find anything. They didn't find any any fraud. They didn't find any misuse. They didn't find any abuse, nothing untoward. So in that, that analysis of the vote, yelling voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud, stolen election, stolen election, and where they identify that theft, where they identify that criminality, where they identify who stole American democracy and from whom, that is where that that rage comes from. Because what it's saying is those black people, those brown people stole American democracy from good, honest, hardworking white folk. Because when you look at who stormed that Capitol, you have the folks who who swaddle themselves in the flag, who swaddle themselves in a sense of Americanness, but actually they don't really believe in America. They believe in a kind of Heronvoke democracy where there is a small strata of whites who receive all of the resources of this nation and a large rightless labor pool that generates those resources. That's what they believe in. So that's how I'm making that link by where they're identifying the, the sources of fraud. And we hear it now when Trump is talking about He's going to send his supporters to go protect the vote. He's going to send them to Atlanta. He's going to send them to Philadelphia. He's going to send them to Detroit. Once again, he's identifying cities that have sizable black populations. And his supporters are overwhelmingly white. 
So sending this, this these whites to go to these sizable black populations and protect the vote, we know what that means. It looks like Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, where you had a white supremacist coup that overthrew a multiracial government. I'm in conversation with Carol Anderson. She is a historian, an author, and a professor of African-American studies at Emory University, and she is one of three historians and authors that we've invited for a special show here as we observe the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection in the nation's capital. I'm asking her questions about whether history can be a guide to where we are Do we have the chaos and divisiveness that we deserve? How do we approach what comes next with some sense of perspective and clarity? Professor, um, Eric Foner is one of our historians, and Mm. he argues that what happened three years ago this week at the U.S. Capitol, quote, represents something deeply rooted in the American experience, which is actually hostility to democracy. I think in some ways you were alluding to that idea. What do you think of it? And it's democracy the way that we understand it. Democracy meaning that American citizens have rights. American citizens can vote. And what he's pointing to is that sense of a very exclusive democracy where there are only certain people who are worthy of citizenship, certain people who are worthy of rights, certain people who are worthy of democracy. So when I talk about America as an aspirational nation, it has been that aspiration. It has been women fighting for the right to vote, women fighting for reproductive rights. It has been African-Americans fighting for the right to vote, fighting for their full first-class citizenship. It has been Latinos fighting for the right to vote, fighting for full first-class citizenship. It's been Asian-Americans fighting for the right to vote, fighting for full citizenship. That's the clash that's going on right now, this clash between the folks who want basically the resources of the United States stay very exclusive, when I talk about that hair invoke democracy, or when you think about the the January 6th insurrectionist who was flying the Confederate flag in the Capitol, that speaks to the vision of that Trumpian group versus the vision of a broader, much more vibrant democracy. That is where the threat is. So when you hear the great replacement theory, mm-hmm. it is it is playing to that sense of threat, threat to white power, threat to whites having access to full resources. It's playing to that threat. It's treating America like a zero-sum game and instead of one that it can be vibrant, that, can, that there's enough here for all of us. And so, yes, Eric Foner is right on point. That has been one of the consistent battles in American history, this struggle over what is democracy and who has access to it. When I asked you to choose an adjective for this moment uh, of American history, you chose precariousness, precarity. Mm -hmm. Can you identify a time in American history where there was an equal sense of precarity and, as you've noted, much of the population was not identifying it as such? Is there another time that this compares to, that you're looking to for some sense of perspective? So when I look at the the presidential election of 1860, that Abraham Lincoln won, Mm -hmm. and the South refused to acknowledge that he won that, that campaign, he won that election. They refused to acknowledge that he was president of the United States. And then when you think about I think I saw a figure that said 70% of Republicans refused to believe that Joe Biden actually won the presidency. And so when you've got this sense of the president of the United States is illegitimate, he has been delegitimized by a broad swath of the American public. That's precarity. And that sense that those who voted for him aren't real citizens. They aren't real Americans. That's precarity. And the willingness to engage in violence in order to make their point. Again, the Civil War, but when we begin to think about the kind of, of violence that was 
That was January 6th, the kind of violence that had bomb threats going in to county boards of elections, the kinds of threats that rained down on poll workers, the kinds of violence where where one of Trump's supporters was sending um, pipe bombs to those that he thought were Trump's enemies, that kind of sanctioning of violence. And when you have the Republican National Committee looking at January 6th saying that was legitimate political discourse. That's the precarity there. Professor, one last question about what you've just said. You know, when when pollsters ask Americans about how they feel about the political system and our political culture, they answer things like despair, exhaustion. You know, they're, they're even they're, there's even kind of a sense of apathy that nothing I do really matters. And yet, we're in an era of or a time of high political participation and turnout. And I wonder how you square that. Uh, I square that with folks who have been systematically denied access to democracy. They understand what's at stake. They don't subscribe to the American exceptionalism. Oh, that can't happen here because it has happened here in the era of Jim Crow. Uh, because of massive disfranchisement, you would have a voter turnout rate somewhere between three to seven percent for federal elections, for federal Mm. elections. And so we have been in these kinds of authoritarian regimes before, and we saw the kinds of policies that emanated from that authoritarian regime. And so when you have been denied your rights, you will fight for them. And that's what we're seeing. So that's how you square that, that sense of, of, Lord, this thing is messed up, but it could be even worse. And so I've got the power. I've got the power to make it not worse. And that's what we're seeing here. And part of what where you're seeing that engagement is I have the power to make it better. Hmm. And that is, that is where we're seeing that massive youth turnout. That's where you're seeing this fight over gerrymandering um, mm-hmm. to stop to stop the way that these states deny the power of the vote to minority communities. That is why you're seeing uh, people who are marching, who are protesting, who are uh, writing to their their representatives, their senators, their their congresspeople, demanding change. So part of what we see is the way that it is described. Congress is not functioning. But it's not Congress that's not functioning. It's the Republicans that aren't functioning. When you look at the dystopia that is coming out of the House of Representatives, the Republicans in the House of Representatives, it took, what, 15 tries to get uh, Kevin McCarthy elected as Speaker of the House. And then it just took, you know, Matt Gates being disgusted with McCarthy because McCarthy didn't want to crash the economy to oust him. And then we've got a Christian nationalist. Mm, who's now the speaker, but they're not able to get anything of substance done that the American people want. Um, So that gun safety legislation, the Voting Rights Act, climate control, none of that is on their agenda. Instead, it is an impeachment, but they don't even know what the charge is because they haven't been able to find anything. That is not Congress not functioning. That's the Republicans wallowing in chaos and spewing chaos. And that is also why this is so precarious. When you have one of your major parties that is not functioning, that leads to a precarity in American society, in American democracy. And and that precarity came through in January 6th, where even after, after, after their lives were threatened, after police officers were beaten, some to death, after that horrific scene, You still had, what, 147 or so vote not to certify the election? Wow. Wow. Carol Anderson is a historian and professor of African-American studies at Emory University. She's the author of a number of books, including White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. She was joining us from Atlanta. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. I really appreciate this.
I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show and podcast where readers meet writers, and then it's good to have you listening. As we observe the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection and look ahead to a corrosive campaign for president, we've invited three historians and authors from different regions of the country to reflect on this American moment. Can history be a guide to where we are? Do we have the chaos and divisiveness that we deserve? Is there any value to counterfactual history in a political moment like this? We're turning to Elizabeth Cobbs. She's a historian and emeritus professor of the history department at Texas A&M University. And her newest book is titled Fearless Women. And she joins us from San Diego, California. Professor, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Choose one adjective, if you will, to describe how you see the state of our democracy, and then we'll delve into why you chose that word. I think the word has to be imperiled. And why choose that? I mean, historians, were, you know, we're famous for saying, well, you know, this, this very thing happened once before. Yeah. It's kind of like what we specialize in. And, it's, and there's much comfort in that. But it's also very important to recognize breaking points or turning points and inflection points in the same way. And this is to make a comparison. If you would say in the 1930s, if you did not recognize you know, the dangers of the Great Depression and World War, impending war, that would be a mistake. So here, too, we have a situation where the United States, we're seeing fairly significant numbers of people turn their back on democracy. And, and not really care about anti-democratic acts that are taking place. Do you have the sense that Americans in the collective sense have a, an idea of that peril that you see? I think they don't. And, and, and part of what happens is we have demagogues, and particularly Donald Trump, but others, there are many others, we're trying to stampede us. And when you have fear and someone's trying to stampede you, you know, what happens is that people start kind of running wildly and following these leaders whom normally nobody would look at twice because they so, um, they're so antithetical to the basic principles of the United States, which were, you know, de- decided, you know, in the eight, you know, 17, 1776, which are rule, rule of law, rule of law and separation of church and state. So the crazy thing about Donald Trump from a historical point of view is that he's unique among American presidents. He's the first anti-democratic president the United States has ever had, um, who said before he was elected, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. So the significance of those kinds of statements and later actions is to say that there is a kind of a flouting of the law, and I think American people have become used to it kind of inured, if you will, to, um, to violations of our, of our law and of our spirit. As I, you know, I, I think the United States is, is a beautiful and wonderful country, and I'm, you know, I'm very pleased and proud to have been born here and live here. Um, at the same time, I do think that, like anybody, you know, we're susceptible to, to disease. <laughs> it happens even to the nicest of us. One of the things that, that occurs to me as I hear you talk about being stampeded and being inured in some ways to what's happening around us is how accustomed and then, I think, numbed we get to the language of the moment. You know, it seems to hear the statements that Donald Trump might make or others might make seem shocking in the first go round. And then they become just part of, it seems like kind of part of the water that we're swimming in. We become very accustomed to hearing people speak in a certain way and use certain turns or phrases that I think on the, on the first, you know, listen, sound authoritarian and I wonder if you could reflect for a moment on the words that are being used and the language and how that sweeps us towards what you've just been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that formulation, and I, I particularly resonate with your word, numb. Because I was you know, thinking about this a lot, you know, obviously all of us have, but I'm thinking about it knowing I was going to talk with you today. And I think in some ways what's happened 
um, is that every we're, every time Trump hits us, we become a little more used to it. Sort of like you know child abuse, right? When abused children become more and more uh, numb to lies and to violence. And what that requires us to do is to be adult, right? Is to say, wait a minute, let's look at that word. So when Speaker of the House Mike Johnson says, you know, I've been ordained, you know, God has chosen us to to run the country. You just a word like that. We don't ordain people. That's a theocracy. So, for example, in Iran, they have a theocracy. That means the the religious authorities run the country. We don't have that in the United States. The fundamental separation of church and state goes right back to the Federalist Papers, to Madison and Hamilton and Washington and Jefferson, who really thought a lot about this. I mean, it was a very important and historic break uh, in the United States. And so when one of our elected figures says, oh, I've been ordained, it's like saying I'm a priest. And so Mm. the oddity of all that, Carrie, is that any one incident from the Trump presidency would have been enough to damn an earlier president. For example, I mean, it's even weird to use terms like the first impeachment. So in the first impeachment, I had to go back and remind myself, now what are the list of, you know, terrible things that happened under this anti-democratic president? And, uh, you know, which was basically to hold up military protection from Ukraine long before the Russian invasion basically to extort them to investigate Joseph Biden. I mean, this it's, it's like it's like a farce. It's like an opera someone wrote, and you can hardly believe it. So you're right. We have gotten numb, and, and that's so dangerous. You know, that's really like being trapped little kids. And we need, we are adults, and we can do something about these things. I want to ask you about the word patriot, because... It is a word that has become freighted with symbolism and contemporary political power. In the prologue to your most recent book, Fearless Women, you write several paragraphs about the use of the word patriot and its original meaning. I see that word often today, and I perceive it as carrying some danger with it because of the political moment that we're in. And given... You know, given how you come to that kind of language and the insight that you bring to it from your last book, I want to know what you think when you see that word used in so many different ways. Well, I think that, uh, and this concerns me a lot, Carrie, this really does concern me a lot, because there's this uh, implication, some people have played kind of a game of capture the flag, (laughs) Like, like only certain people get to have the American flag. And by the way, the left and the right have both, I think, contributed to our problems. I mean, they've, mm-hmm. you know, this, um, and happy to talk more about that. But what's happened is that the idea has become sort of that the right, and the, it's the extreme right, by the way, gets to capture the flag. And so, you know, you see a guy go down the street who's got a plumbing service and he says, Patriot plumbers. And you're like, well, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure this person voted for mm-hmm. Trump, which is which is nonsense. It just means love of the fatherland or love of the motherland, love of country. And, you know, to the extent that both the left and the far right have run down the United States, really run down, um, you know, the meaning of the United States, I hesitate to call either deeply patriotic, but it doesn't matter. You know, if you love your country, you can make mistakes in that love. But to deny that any that the broad American public is not patriotic or even the left is not patriotic is kind of nonsensical. So I really embrace the idea that, you know, don't tell me that if I'm critical of, you know, something our country has done, then I'm not being patriotic because my goodness, I'm critical of my children <laughs> and I cannot think of anyone I love more and they of me. So to love something is not to, is actually to try to respect guardrails is to say, hey, hey, everybody, hey, people I love, let's not do this because we're going to harm ourselves and harm our traditions. So has it ever been thus, though, about that word patriot? It has. There's an interesting, weird um, historical development here. I mean, the word patriot really go. it's an old English word meaning love of country. And, of course, in 1776, it meant 
you know, love of the United States, meaning, by the way, the central government, the idea that we have a union. Not that there are all these competing little, you know, tiny Vermont against, you know, gigantic Virginia. It's instead, it was the idea of that union is, is what we are defending with our lives, you know, with our words. And, uh, and so what's happened is that it's become a bit corrupted uh, in the meaning, in the sense that um, now it's being used to mean kind of people who are willing actually to instigate armed surrections against the United States, because that's mm-hmm. what January 6th was, the combination of anti-government rhetoric combined with easier and growing access to gu- guns and arms, which has been facilitated by uh, the Republican-dominated Supreme Court. Um, so that's it's just a weird confluence of things. Um, and by the way, com- compounded by religious fundamentalism. I mean, if you have people who believe that the second coming is on the way, then the destruction of the United States doesn't really figure. It's not a big problem. If democracy ends or you have a president who doesn't obey the rule of law, that's a temporary inconvenience on the way to this greater good. But the problem is that that's true of fundamentalists elsewhere as well. I mean, that's true of Islamic fundamentalists who think, you know, blow up a school bus of kids. What does that matter? Because this is, you know, speeding our entrance into heaven. Or, and the, you know, that's true of Hindu fundamentalists and Jewish mm-hmm. fundamentalists. So these smaller segments of major world religions, which have kind of captured the imagination in the 20th century and unfortunately have become you know, increasingly either inured to violence or willing to engage in it. Okay, one last question here. In September, when Pew Research surveyed Americans about their views of the state of our political culture, two-thirds said they always or often feel exhausted when they think of it. 55% said they always or often feel angry. What I think is odd... I I understand those numbers. I think we see that reflected in the way people respond um, to the, you know, to our political culture. But the odd thing about this is it is paired with highly motivated voter turnout. So this despair and this anger and exhaustion has not given way to apathy. And I wonder if as a as a historian, you see any parallels in American history to that or what you make of it? Well, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, there is, there are parallels. The, the, the thing is when people are satisfied and content, you know, voter turnout can tend to be sort of low. They're like, hey, you know, government's cooking along. It's doing what it does, which is basically I can ignore it and not worry too much about what goes on. But there has been a willful, um, effort to create distrust in the American government. You know, the, Ronald Reagan said the problem is, you know, government's not the solution, government's the problem. And now people forget, but he was on the far right of his party uh, for much of his career and then, then became president. So this idea that our government is wrong, you know, we're, it's bad, is something that we've been told on the right and also on the left. Like, by the way, I always gnash my teeth when I see Hollywood movie after Hollywood movie about how really who's trying to kill us all is the CIA. (laughs) The CIA is responsible for everything. There's actually no need for it. Who needs intelligence about foreign, other foreign countries, you know, which have nuclear weapons? We don't need it. You know, CIA is trying to get us. So, I think people are exhausted and they are tired. I know the Pew poll you're talking about. And I think it's because you're so tired of being stampeded. When you're stampeded, you get really tired of running, and yet you still feel like you have to keep running. That's what Mm -hmm. happens. Um, So, yes, I think people are upset. They're worried. They show up. Sometimes the angriest people show up. And so Mm -hmm. that's why, um, you know, to the extent that uh, on the far right and on the far left, there's been so much um, negative talk for decades now about how wrong the government is. Um, and that's, that is a shame. That's really a shame because we do things wrong. Yes, everybody does, but we also do a lot of things right or other countries would not look to us. Now, by the way, they're looking to us a lot less right now because democracies don't see us as a model of democracy, uh, or at least the model that we have been in some previous generations. I would like to get back to that. You know, I think we have many strengths and we need to start looking at those because right now the people who want to uh, amp up our fear and anger are not talking to us about what we do right. 
Elizabeth Cobbs is a historian and emeritus professor at Texas A&M University, and her new book is titled Fearless Women. Thank you so much for your views and your perspective. Thank you, Carrie. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special Big Books and Bold Ideas as we observe the third anniversary of January 6th insurrection. We are looking ahead to a corrosive campaign for president, and we've invited three historians and authors from different regions of the country to reflect on this American moment. We're turning now to Eric Foner. He's a historian and professor emeritus at Columbia University, where he specialized in the Civil War and Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Professor, welcome. Uh, very happy to be here. Could you choose one adjective to describe how you see the state of our democracy? And then we'll delve into why you chose that word. <laughs> um, uh, our situation now is very complicated, and uh, one adjective may not be sufficient to uh, cover everything that's going on right now. But something along the lines of fraught, that's a somewhat obscure word, or, um, you know, contested, um, you know, I think I'm not saying anything that many people don't already know, but that we are highly polarized as a nation, both about politics and about culture in a broader sense. Uh, and uh, that has uh, seems to spill over into almost every other aspect of life. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think our political system, uh, that is our constitutional system, is you know, re really prepared for some of the deep divisions we are seeing in the in the country right now. When I asked two other historians for their words, they chose imperiled and precarious. You don't sound and quite as is not bad. okay. Precarious no, is okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I was going to say you you don't sound as urgent, I guess, about the state of of affairs as right. perhaps my other two guests. And why is that? Well, as you mentioned, I've written many books on the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, and yeah, I, I, we're not quite, I don't think, at the, at the point where we may be reliving the kinds of violent struggles that took place in the 19th century. Um, you know, whenever people say to me, and they frequently do, are we on the verge of a civil war? Um, I have to say, not quite yet. I mean, I, I just, I think uh, there are deep problems in our democratic structure right now, as was mentioned. But um, I, I think we we have to maintain a sort of a sense of balance that these kinds of things have happened before in our society. Deep division, deep polarization. I mean, you can go back, take a look at what the newspapers said about George Washington when he was president. Um <laughs> Uh, they they make Fox News look uh, very pleasant, uh, you know, to, to <laughs> President Biden. Um, so, uh, again, I'm not trying to minimize the situation at all. I think um, it is precarious because depending on the results of the 2024 elections, uh, I think the country is going to take a turn, uh, whether toward even deeper, um, you know, deeper division or toward maybe a uh, uh, more harmony, perhaps. Um, I don't know. Obviously, uh, historians don't predict the future, or at least shouldn't. But I, maybe I'm not as uh, as worried. Our political system, our Constitution, you know, go back and read James Madison and the Federalist Papers. The Constitution was created, among other things, in order to make it difficult for controversies like we are facing today to override uh, normal politics and things like that. It's very hard to get things accomplished in our constitutional system. Uh, and I think some of the same barriers to extremism and paranoia and um, racism, uh, the barriers to those things, which we see proliferating in the country, of course, uh, are going to be there regardless of which, uh, you know, political tendency comes out victorious in 2024. So, Again, I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna here, but we do need to look as historians back and say, you know, the 1960s, I lived through that. 
things were awfully polarized. I mean, you know, very deeply. The Clinton administration, it's not that long ago, go back to all the hatred that was uh, that was directed at Clinton and then at President Obama when he uh, was in office, or way back even before then in the in the run up, obviously to the Civil War, Reconstruction, the you know deep of the violence that overtook our politics after the Civil War in the Reconstruction period, where you know people were murdered for trying to vote. So again, uh, my point is just we're not we have seen things like this before. I, I do think, and many people have uh, have said this, and I'm not trying to uh, cast any aspersions on our media, but it does seem like the Internet and the uh, ability to spread things around instantaneously has exacerbated a lot of the threats to democracy that we face uh, right now. Uh, back in the days of George Washington, I said people said, very uh, violent and hostile things, but it took a long time for those mm. things to get around. Uh, mm. That's not the case anymore. Uh, Professor, I, I went back to read some of what you wrote in the weeks and months after the January 6th insurrection three years ago. And one of the things that you said was that it, quote, represents something deeply rooted in the American experience which is actually hostility to democracy. Give us mm -hmm. some context for that. What did you mean? Well, you know, uh, a good friend of mine, Professor Stephen Hahn of New York University, has a book coming out in the next month or so. I'm not uh, his public relations agent, but it's called <laughs> uh -huh. Illiberal America. And it's exactly about the tradition, you know, we know and we value, you know, all Americans value the tradition of democracy or the tradition of uh, tolerance, harmony. You know, not everybody is at everybody's throats all the time. But uh, the illiberal side, and I'm talking about liberal and illiberal, not in terms of current liberalism, but more 19th century of uh, limited government, free speech and civil liberties and things like that. Those are, there have been many, many people in our history who have uh, felt that too many people are voting, that the right to vote ought to be restricted to those who are supposedly uh, better able to utilize it. Um, Needless to say, racism is deeply embedded. This is a society which was built on slavery in its economic uh, you know, foundations. Um, that produced a deep strain of hostility to non-white people uh, in, our, you know, in our history. Now, of course, we've made great strides, I think, beyond that. But, um, you know, if you go back, the, the way Chinese were treated on the West Coast, uh, one could list uh, many, many things. But um, I think the main point is simply that respect for democracy, respect for tolerance, respect for difference has always been contested in, the, in our history. Uh, it's not accepted by 100 percent of the people. And um, that's what I think I was referring to, that the January 6th events reflected things that had happened, go back to Reconstruction, where mobs of white supremacists overturned elections and uh, drove people out of political office who had been elected to them. It's happened before in our history. I guess that's one of the, um, you know, one of the points I was trying to make at that time. Uh, Emory historian Carol Anderson, um, who is one of our historians that we're speaking with, told me that she sees the events of January 6th as a kind of distortion of the idea of American exceptionalism. Does that make sense to you? You know, I'm not one of those people who believes in American exceptionalism, and I think uh, it's, it's a, a somewhat dangerous idea in that it's sort of that it gives you an excuse not to know anything about the rest of the world. Uh, you know, the, we're so exceptional that the laws of history or the experiences of history don't apply to us. Uh, at least many people feel that way. Um, so, you know, I think American exceptionalism actually in some ways promotes some of the anti-democratic uh, sentiments that uh, we've seen uh, proliferating in the country in the last, uh, I don't know, generation, let's say. So I, I, I see what she's talking about, that, you know, that people feel that they can just take any action that they want to 
in order to gain their political ambitions. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, if you complain about it, they say, well, that, you know, American exceptionalism, we're a unique country. What we right. do is by definition democratic and, uh, you know, and tolerant and everything. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, I, I think you're hitting on what Professor Anderson meant. She said she sees America as an aspirational country that is constantly trying to achieve, you know, some kind of equity and culture that it often falls short of. But that this idea that we're exceptional, as you said, provides cover for a lot of undemocratic uh, and discriminatory movements and actions. Right. Yes, you know, uh, by the way, though, the uh, piece that you quoted that I'd written right after January 6th, um, <laughs> I don't remember 100 percent, but mm-hmm. um, one of the points I made was on that very day, you also had two men elected to the U.S. Senate, right, a, from the state of Georgia. A black yes, man, you did Reverend point Warnock, that out. Yeah. Right, and a Jewish man. And if you go back to the history of Georgia, you'll see that's a pretty remarkable thing. You know, I mean, that was a slave, a a very big slave society. I mean, really, one of the major centers of American slavery was Georgia. And yet here they're electing a black man to the U.S. Senate. And anti-Semitism was pretty rife in Georgia. The lynchings not only of uh, black people, but of Jewish people. Um, So in other words, the very the very fact that we had overcome, or the people of Georgia, the majority, had overcome their tradition of, um, you know, of intolerance, let us say. It was a sign of hope. You know, whether one agrees with these two men or not, the point is they could get elected in a state that has a history of intolerance and illiberalism. So that gives you maybe grounds for hope that uh, mm. the kinds of current um, the, the current altercations that are going on all over the place, you, you know, can, we can move beyond that. We can move beyond that. By the way, a couple of years ago, uh, Joanne Friedman, a, a historian at Yale, wrote a book exactly about fistfights in Congress. And the, before the Civil War, the 30 or 40 years, there were actual, you know, violent battles on the on the floor of Congress uh, between people of different political persuasions. We have a lot of rhetoric of people denouncing each other. I don't think we've yet lately had uh, fisticuffs, so to speak, uh, between, um, I don't know, let's say Senator uh, Mitch McConnell and Senator uh, Schumer or things like that. You know, But they did have that. People, people brought guns to the floor of Congress in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. So this reinforces my point that it, this is not the first time we've seen that kind of that kind of polarization. Your perspective is very valuable here because, I mean, it is, and who would know this better than you, it is indeed to really difficult to get our bearings in the midst of something that seems, you know, chaotic and somewhat unexplainable. Does that when I say that, tell me what you what you think of, of that. I think that's what we're constantly trying to do is put some kind of perspective on this. And in some ways, it seems the events day after day defy that kind of logic or perspective. Well, I mean, I think you're right. People do want perspective on what's going on today. And I recently saw one of those public opinion polls where people were asked about how the country is doing. And what was pretty clear was most people who answered this poll actually wanted to see more cooperation in the country. They they Mm -hmm. held their views strongly, but they wanted to see harmony. They wanted to see racial justice. They wanted to see... Um, you know, goodwill uh, between people of different uh, political outlooks. So now how do they get, how do they, how do they get to that uh, hopeful situation? I don't know, because uh, we seem to be heading in the other direction right now. But I think the desire for perspective, that's where historians come in. You know, the historians uh, can often, I hope, 
or you know offer the kind of perspective that you were that you were mentioning and allow, I think allowing people to realize that this is not the first time this has happened in American history. Um, on the one end, you might say, oh, that's that's depressing. We, we do this all <laughs> over. The-. No, we, it's not all the time. But that it's it, 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 people we have dealt with it in the past. Now, you know, I'm not suggesting that a good civil war would solve all these problems. <laughs> but we've dealt with deep divisions and somehow wor- worked our way through them. And maybe we can do that again. You seemed at the beginning of our conversation to suggest that this election of 2024 may be a a pivot point, what, in contemporary political history. Is that how you see it? Well, I see it as very important because the differences between the two parties seem to be so extreme at the moment. I am not one of those, maybe it's just I'm an optimistic person. I'm not one of those that says, well, look, this election is the fate of democracy. You know, this this election uh, will tell us whether we will continue to be a democratic society or not. Uh, You know, I think it's going to take a long time to to find out exactly what the implications of these events are. But, um, you know... Every election seems like it's the most important one that was ever held. Um, But not all of them are. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Uh, Eric Foner is a historian and an author and professor emeritus at Columbia University. His most recent book, among many, is titled The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Professor, thank you very much for the time and the perspective. Well, pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to a special Big Books and Bold Ideas to mark the third anniversary of January 6th. We asked three historians and authors to join us and share their perspective on this particular American moment. I'm grateful for the context and insight from Carol Anderson, Elizabeth Cobbs, and Eric Foner. If you missed any part of the conversation, look for it online at nprnews.org or on my podcast, Big Books and Bold Ideas with Carrie Miller. <laughs>